All right. Good morning, everybody. We're gonna we're gonna go ahead and begin. In case you're in the wrong place, and no shame if you are, this is a class going through John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. And I want to start with who has never read Pilgrim's Progress. I'm curious what my audiences look like. Okay, so just ma- many people are familiar with it. Well. This class, uh, I will endeavor to go through what is called Book One, which is the the main original text of Pilgrim's Progress, and I won't be able to go as slowly and as deeply as I'd like, otherwise we will never make our way through, but we will hit key points, key scenes, and I'll be bringing in history, some biography from Bunyan's own life, how his experiences, I think, are intimately wrapped up in what he puts in Pilgrim's Progress. Um, but before we start, a few preliminary questions. What kind of literature is Pilgrim's Progress? Does anybody know? Allegory. It's an allegory. What's an allegory? It's a story that's told on two levels. It's told here, but it has a higher level meaning. Right, so it's a story that is told... To portray something deeper. It's something that's given. There's even an example of that in the Bible. Explicitly given. Uh, Paul explains in Galatians. About how the two mountains. And Sarah and Hagar. Represent two covenants. And two ways of approaching God. And he uses the word allegory. Say God built into this pattern. From the old covenant. Something that had a deeper spiritual meaning. Bunyan does the same thing. In Pilgrim's Progress. Why study Pilgrim's Progress? Why did I pick one random book that's really old to pull out to study? Well, other than the Bible, the most printed book in English is Pilgrim's Progress in history. And that's significant. Christians for 400 years have been blessed by this book. In fact, many of the components of this book are still in our vernacular today. Vanity Fair magazine? Where did that name come from? Well, that's a reference. It's an an intentional, from what I understand, an intentional reference to Vanity Fair, which is a place of not good things, as we'll see in Bunyan's story. Mr. Worldly Wise Man. The Castle of Despair. Castle of Despair. These are words that When you say them today, uh, often in Christian circles, people will know what you mean, even if they haven't personally read the book. Similarly, the impact that this book has had on previous generations of Christian is profound. John, uh, not John Bunyan, Charles Spurgeon, who actually wrote a commentary on Pilgrim's Progress, said that next to the Bible, the book I value most is John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. I believe I have read through it at least a hundred times. It is a volume of which I never seem to tire, and the secret of its freshness is that it is largely compiled from the Scriptures. So he's saying that the truth, that the, the painting that Bunyan paints through this story conforms to the truth found in Scripture. So a little high-level biography. Who is John Bunyan? Who was John Bunyan? He was born in 1628. Lived 60 years in England. He was a tinkerer by trade. 
That was his profession. Anybody know what a tinkerer is? That's what it would mean today, right? Uh, Yeah, a tinkerer was someone who repaired metals, usually pots and pans. So in the 1600s in England, if you had your one skillet and the handle broke off, you don't just throw it away and run down to Walmart. You have to call somebody who knows how to basically weld those things back together. And so he was a tinkerer. Uh, He wrote a book later on, a biographical, autobiographical account of his spiritual journey, much similar to Augustine's Confessions, but that book was called Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners. And he, in it, he recounts what his spiritual journey is like. And he talks about how uh, convicted he felt prior to coming to faith and how that conviction was extended. He didn't feel bad after a sermon and then come right to Christ. For 18 months, he persisted in misery, feeling the conviction of the Holy Spirit, and yet rejecting the offer of faith, wanting to keep his sin, and thinking that he could rid himself of the conviction and the misery that comes with it. He later... uh, talks about his conversion in such a way that he says his chains fell off. He was enslaved. He was in in chains bound to his sin. And later, not because he was seeking it, because the congregation pressed him into it, he relented to a call to ministry. He became a minister himself. And he was eventually arrested. In 1660, for preaching the gospel without a license from the Church of England, what we call the Anglican Church, he was charged with teaching men to worship God contrary to the law, meaning the law of the land, the law of man. And he was in jail for 12 years. Do you imagine today the police coming in and hauling Sean or me off in the middle of a service, putting us in jail and family members and church members having to bring us food and feed us every day because they don't feed prisoners, having to bring us blankets and clothes because there's no heat inside. And while he was in this miserable condition, very much like Paul, he wrote book one of the Pilgrim's Progress. During Bunyan's lifetime, there were over 100,000 copies of it circulated. It was translated, it has been since translated into 120 languages. And he firmly teaches through his remarkable imagery, doctrines of nature and grace, imputation, righteousness, law, and then even very very practical, experiential elements like depression, despair, despondency, spiritual warfare, battling just to believe, assurance of salvation and doubt. He pictures these things in very helpful ways. Now I have what I aspire to do in this class. I'm just going to pass some of these. Um, 
little overview of the course and where I intend to go. We have not provided copies of Pilgrim's Progress in here, and that was intentional. Uh, Number one, some people find the original text a little difficult uh, because of some of the antiquated language. So there are modernized versions of Pilgrim's Progress that you're more than welcome to get if you'd like. The original text is available all over the place. Uh, there's multiple places. You just Google it and you can find it as an ebook. You can print it off. It's not super long depending on how it's formatted in a PDF. I will be teaching through um, Banner of Truths edition of the Pilgrim's Progress. It uses the text from the original 1678 text. But any page numbers that you see on any literature or anything that I reference is coming from the Banner of Truth edition. You can also get it as an audiobook online if you prefer to listen. Most of the public domain editions should be identical, or very similar at least. Today we're just going to have a little introduction and then try and work our way from the beginning of the text to the Slough of Despond, which is not very far into the book if you know anything about it. And so if you would like to get a copy and catch up for next week, you can see the places that I'm intending to try and cover on the, uh, each week. Questions so far? Did, uh, did Bunyan put the uh, Bible text in it when he wrote it? I think the publisher did that. The publisher did yeah. I don't know at what edition and at what point, but it was very early on that that was put in there. Okay. It's my understanding, at least. Right. I'm also going to sit around a clipboard with attendance, so if you could write your name in there and just check today's date. It doesn't mean you have to come back next week. If you absolutely hate my lecture and want to go somewhere else, I won't be offended. There it is. Okay. So, to the text. Bunyan begins his story as it were a dream. It says, as I walked through the wilderness of this world, I looked upon a certain place where was a den, and I laid myself down that I might sleep. And as I slept, I dreamed a dream. And behold, I saw a man clothed in rags, standing in a certain place, with his face pointed away from his home, a book in his hand, and a great big burden upon his back. So here we have the opening scene. We have a man, which we might call graceless at this point. He will later be called Christian, renamed Christian. And he's at his home. This man is looking away from his home. And this home, as we will soon see, is called the City of Destruction. And he's miserable. It says, I looked and I saw him open the book and, I, and, he, and, and read therein. And as he read, he wept and he trembled. 
Not being able to contain himself anymore, he, he broke out with a lamentable cry, What shall I do? Bunyan is picturing a theological truth that is more than a theological truth to him. He's picturing a man experiencing what Bunyan himself felt. Right? We have man, and he begins his journey from the city of destruction to the heavenly city at the end of the book. And it begins with misery. It begins with conviction. It begins with the awareness of one's own sinfulness. And it begins with an awareness that derives specifically from a book. The man, Graceless, didn't wake up and just start feeling bad. He read the book and he began to weep and tremble and cry out, What shall I do? Does that sound like something in Scripture? When Peter preaches after Pentecost and the people cry out, What, what must we do to be saved? Bunyan's picturing the same thing. It's not merely some morbid curiosity, some leftover or some, some, some Puritan hang-up where they're always introspective and always thinking about sin and how miserable they are. No, this is a theological truth that salvation cannot come unless it is preceded by conviction. The well don't need a physician. The sick do. The gospel will not be sweet until the law has first had its sting. Bunyan is picturing this. Bunyan, born, as I said, in 1628, lives at home until he's 16. He lies about his age. He joins the army. He's in it for several years before they disband. And around this time in England, some significant things are happening. In 16. 49, Charles I, the reigning monarch, is beheaded. The big revolution. Oliver Cromwell ascends to rule. And after this, Bunyan begins to feel conviction about his own sin. As he writes in Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners, he says, It was my delight to be taken by the devil. To follow at his will. I was filled with all manner of unrighteousness. I had but few equals in cursing and lying and blaspheming the holy name of God. Bunyan is writing a picture that he himself experienced and he knew it. He was in Pilgrim's shoes. He was just like Graceless. 1649, Bunyan marries a woman who bears him four children. Sadly, her name is lost to history. We don't know what her name was. But she brought into the marriage two religious books. One was by Lewis Bailey, The Practice of Piety, a very influential book. The other was by a man named Arthur Dent, The Plain Man's Pathway to Heaven. I won't go into this, but if you study those two books, you see great impact on what Bunyan illustrated in his allegory. And so how did this conviction of sin come about for Bunyan? Well, one day, when he was married, he was caught playing a game called Tip Cat, which is like 
got some pieces of wood and some sticks, and you're trying to keep the piece of wood in the air. It's a game they played. But he was caught playing this game on the Sabbath. And he was rebuked for it. You see, one of the things that fueled the war in the 1640s and led, contributed to uh, Charles I being dethroned was a book that came out called the Book of Sports, which laid out what was acceptable and unacceptable recreations on the Sabbath day. And Tipcat was unacceptable, according to the book. And all of these Sabbath arguments were on people's mind back then. And so he was rebuked for playing this game, and, and he was convicted about it, he says. He says, I was convicted, he recounts it this way, a voice did suddenly dart from heaven into my soul, which said, will you leave thy sins and go to heaven, or will you have your sins and go to hell? He says his soul was straining under this burden of conviction. But he doesn't relent. He's under the the weight of conviction. He grows despondent. He describes his condition like this. My state is surely miserable. Miserable if I leave my sins, but miserable if I follow them. I can but be damned. And if I must be damned, I had as good be as damned for many sins as for a few And so the fallen man justifies continuing down the path of sin, staying, lingering in the city of destruction, not turning to go towards the heavenly city. He would not submit to the Lord. He recounts in what was a frankly comical moment in his autobiography, standing outside of a window of a house, And he was cursing and he was swearing. And his speech was so poor that the woman of the house, which we might call a a woman of ill repute, leaned out the window and began to chastise Bunyan. And she said to him that he was one of the most ungodly fellow. This was a harlot, a whore. And that... He was the most ungodly man she'd ever met in, his, in her whole life. And his conduct was so poor that he was more than enough negative influence to drive all the youth in this town to misery if they would just come near him. That's how bad his speech was, that the prostitutes were chastising him. And he recounts this to his shame. And he carries this burden for 18 Months, And I think that is hugely significant to how Bunyan writes this work. Because one of the debates, critiques of Bunyan's work is how long he pictures Christian and his salvation journey before he gets to the cross. We'll, we'll talk more about that. The question is why does it take so long for the evangelist to point Christian? Why does he point him to the wicked gate, the straight gate, rather than pointing him straight to the cross? Because the cross is where Christian loses his burden, as we'll see. I think one of the reasons... Well, we'll get more to that. So soon after we have the picture of this man, he meets another man named... Evangelist. And this 
evangelist, I believe, is probably modeled after Bunyan's own pastor, John Gifford. The evangelist tells Graceless to go, to head to the wicket gate. Does anybody know what a wicket gate is? Sounds kind of like a picket, picket fence, right? That's what immediately popped into my mind. But a wicket gate is a smaller gate in a larger one. You may have seen old castles or something. They'll have a big door and then a little door. Go to the narrow door. Go to the narrow gate. It says, do you see yonder wicked gate? The man said, no. He said, do you see the yonder shining light? He said, I do. And then said, evangelist, keep your eye in the light and go directly thereto and you shall see the gate. And at which thou knockest, it shall be told thee what you shall do. And so the man begins to run. It's similar to the call that Jesus makes in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, enter by the narrow gate. You can't go to the large, wide gate. You must go to the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and easy that leads to destruction. It's so easy to just stay in the city that you're in. But the gate is narrow and the way is hard, as we shall see for a Christian. And those who find it are few, which Bunyan also illustrates for us. And so Graceless, at this point, is unable to see the wicked gate. But he's told, go to the light. Stay on the light. Keep your eye in the light. And so he begins to run. It says, he'd not run far from his door, but his wife and his children perceiving it. Let out a cry after him, come back, return. But the man put his fingers in his ears and he ran on crying, life, life, eternal life. And so he looked not behind him, but he fled towards the middle of the plain, towards the light, towards the wicked gate. As he's on his way towards the wicked gate, He meets some friends. Not good friends, but friends. And he meets two characters. One is called obstinate, which means stubborn. And the other is called pliable. You might say flexible. Bunyan is here illustrating two kinds of opposition to the gospel. Obstinate is unmovable, as his name implies. He is stubborn. He's rigid. Pliable is the opposite. Pliable is fickle, capricious. He's he's ready to believe anything and everything. Whatever sounds good today, let's do that. Tomorrow we may do something else. Christian, for that was his name, says on page 5 of my book, 
So Graceless is given a name at this point. We'll come back to that point. Uh, Obstinate asks of Christian, what are the things that you're seeking since you leave all of the world behind to find them? And Christian says, I seek an inheritance which is incorruptible, undefiled, that will not fade away, 1 Peter 1. It's laid up in heaven, safe there to be bestowed at the time appointed on those who diligently seek it. Read, it is so, if you will, read it in my book. And Obstinate says, tush, away with your books. Will you, Christian, go back with us to the city or not? Christian says, no, not I. I have laid my hand to the plow. He's begun a journey. He's taken on a work. He's heard from evangelists what he must do to be saved. And he will not turn away. Obstinate says, this is foolishness. You're going after something you can't see. And you're leaving behind that which is so important to you. You're going to give up all the world and chase after this dream, this fairy tale. Why would you do that? That's what the world says. You're foolish. I remember being in college and some friends of mine, I was telling them that I intended to go to seminary rather than some other things that I was planning to do. And I think the Lord's calling me into some kind of ministry. And I had a a guy that I'm a friend with to these days, not a believer, but he, was a, he is, in one sense, a very honest man. He looked at me in the face and said, You are an idiot. Why would you waste the mind that God gave you on that? You could be a doctor or a lawyer. Why would you do that? He was, he was obstinate. He was trying to get me to turn. And the world tries to turn all of us away. But those that aren't obstinate may also be, or instead be, Pliable. See, Pliable is an interesting character because he loves what he hears, but he has no interest in doing. He's a hearer, but not a doer. He's concerned with the talk that Christian does, that he gives about the coming destruction. And Pliable is really excited about the nice things that Christian's talking about, about the heavenly delights, about the promises of God, about heaven. But when the tough time comes, Pliable's unwilling. And so while Christian, in his heart, under conviction, appears tender and concerned and sincere, even zealous, Pliable is kind of carefree. He's undisturbed. The conversation begins with Christian speaking of the powers and the terrors that he feels because of the coming destruction on the city. Pliables kind of ignores that. He brushes it off. Christian is, is so, uh, he, he struggles to speak. But he reads in his book, Pliable soon agrees to follow with him. He joins up Christian in this journey. And it seems like he is another zealous follower. That he's joined a companion in his, strong, his long journey to the 
city of heaven, the heavenly city, the celestial city. The gospel appears to spring up, but as we soon see, it's only for a moment. Jesus explains about the seed that fell on the stony places. Is like the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, pliable look, like he had Christian joy. And yet he had no roots. And he only endured for a while. For when tribulation and persecution arises because of the word, this man immediately stumbles, Matthew 13, 20 and 21. So what's the evidence of pliable's hard, stony Heart. Well, he lacks the distinction that sets him apart from many others. The picture is significant. What is Christian carrying? A big burden. Pliable has no burden. Pliable is skipping around, as we'll soon see. He feels as light as the air. He's ready to run and just take off towards heaven. That sounds nice. I'll have that. But Christian feels the conviction, the weight of his burden. Christian knows he's unfit for heaven. But Pliable's shallow commitment is soon tested. His conversion proves disingenuous, spurious. His fall only takes the first sign of difficulty to fall away. You see, they they go in. To a place called the Slough of Despond. S-L-O-U-G-H. Some people say slough. It's not slough. I've heard somebody say that. Slough of Despond. Just kind of a, a picture. It represents the shame, the uncleanness felt by Christian because of his sin. He feels dirty and mucky. Slough is like a swamp. It's a mucky place. And so you're you're bogged down. You can't move quickly. You're easily stuck. And Christian and Pliable enter the slough. And Christian begins to, to sink Why is he sinking? Because he has a burden. He's carrying a big, heavy weight and it presses down into the muck. Pliable also goes into the slough. The text says that he doesn't have his burden and so he's able to be a little more nimble. He can move around. He's not as heavy. He's not sinking But he tastes of the unpleasantness of the slough. He gets a little hint of conviction. He gets a little hint of unpleasantness. And so Pliable rids himself of this feeling. Let's see. Bible gets himself out of the muck. And it says soon that he returned to the city of destruction in which he was born. 
He was like the man, the seed cast on the stone that had no roots, shot up for a while, and then was gone. But the text tells us more. It says that he was in a worse state than he was before. Worse state than had he left, never left the city of destruction. His heart has hardened as he joins in all the others who are mocking and ridiculing Christian for leaving his house in such a foolish way. Why would he leave what is such a sweet family and a nice house and go on this mucky slough journey? It makes no sense. Pliable himself even becomes the object of scorn. All the others in the sea of destruction say, what were you thinking going out there in the slough? You idiot. You could even be deceived to believe his foolishness about heaven and about rewards. The, The world mocks him even for venturing out at the beginning. He's called a fool. He's treated as a hypocrite. This picture of a slough is something that many, many have experienced. This swamp of despair. Some would say Bunyan's wrong for picturing this. It's, it's, you, you, when you get conviction and you are told by the evangelist how to be saved, then you should feel great. You can have assurance immediately. But Bunyan is here picturing how conviction of sin, a necessary component of salvation, can lead to a worse state of affairs in the heart of a young, untrained Christian. Conviction without further instruction and biblical knowledge can actually make things inexperienced worse than they were before. You can feel terrible. I don't think Bunyan is saying that this is the experience of every Christian. I think what Bunyan is picturing is what many Christians do experience. I think it's autobiographical for him as well. You hear how to be saved... And instead of immediately being at the cross or being at the wicked gate and having your burden removed, you sink down. The Christian sank into the muck. Unlike pliable, without the burden, who was able to skip around like a mountain goat and pluck himself out and leave the slough, Bunyan is wearying himself. He's hopelessly stuck. He needs assistance. And at this point, he gets help. In fact, the help that comes is a character named Help. Help comes and gives him a hand. Says it stepped in and plucked him out. He said, this miry slough is such a place that cannot be mended. It is the descent where the scum and the filth that attends conviction for sin doth continually run. Therefore, it's called the slough of despond. 
For still as the sinner is awakened about his lost condition, there arises in his soul many fears, many doubts, many discouraging apprehensions, which all of them together settle in this place, this slough. And that's the reason for the badness of this ground. This is why it's not enough simply to tell people, trust in Jesus and be saved. That's true. But they need to learn more. They need to be discipled. They need to be plugged into a church. They need to be trained and instructed. They need to be helped when they fall down into the muck and the mire. As we'll see, this journey is not a journey that Christian is walking alone. He needs help. And help comes. Christian asks, why aren't there signs? Why, why, why wouldn't they put up a big billboard saying, don't come into the slough. Don't come here. And help goes on to say that millions of signs have been sent out and have been placed But they all get swallowed up. Says the lawgiver has instead placed stones. He's placed steps for finding your way through the slough. Bunyan's saying this experience, while nearly universal for all Christians, has a way through. But what you need is a guide to show you where to walk, how to navigate. And the lawgiver, the ruler of the land, has explained, has set out stones and a path for us to follow. But the untrained Christian doesn't know the path. And so he's going to be like the Egyptians whose wheels get caught up with mud and they can't make any progress. So Bunyan's picture here is describing how he himself fell down into the conviction, the despair, the the depression. This is the slough that for 18 months he himself, Bunyan, was battling. Do we see anywhere in Scripture an experience like this? Psalm 130, verses 1 and 2. Out of the depths I cry out to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. I'm crying out from the slough, from the swamp. Hear me, O God. It's not unlike what Paul experiences in Romans 7. I do the things I don't want to do. I don't do the things I want to do. Who will deliver me from this body of death? This experience. Which I would venture to say most of us have tasted. Of a slough of despond. Getting 
stuck in the conviction of sin. Doesn't mean that we aren't on the right path. That we aren't headed towards the heavenly city. That we haven't left the the city of destruction. We may still be carrying a burden. Indeed, unnecessarily so. We may feel bogged down and we see the weight of our sin pressing us down. And we don't feel like we're making progress in the Christian life like we should be. What is your name? What is his name? He's been given a name. He's been named Christian. that's That's a sermon right there. The presence of the slough does not take away the name that has been given. The presence of despair, the presence of a burden, the presence of a lack of progress in life. Yes, they're all lamentable. And to some extent, we should be ashamed that we haven't made more progress. But it doesn't erase the name that we've been given. It doesn't mean that we are citizens of the city of destruction any longer. So, we must remember the words of the evangelist. I know you can't see the wicked gate all the time. I know the gate seems far away. But you see that light. Look to the light. Look to the light. Who's the light of the world? It's Christ. Bunyan is saying, remember to look to Jesus. Don't have your eyes fixed on the slough. Don't have your eyes fixed on the burden all the time. Look to the light. Remember that which brings life and salvation. I'm going to stop there today. I know we haven't made far. That was intentional. But next week, we're going to get into Mr. Worldly Wise Man. And try and make it to Interpreter's House. So if you have a version of Pilgrim's Progress which has a table of contents that lists places and people, which many do, you can start where Mr. Worldly Wiseman walks on the scene and try and get to Mr. Interpreter's house. I would like to pray. If you haven't signed the attendance sheet, please make sure you do that. I don't know where the clipboard is, but it's around. If you would like a course overview sheet and you don't have one, you can have it. And we'll go upstairs and pray.